Well, on the way into the service this morning, you should have gotten our program. There's a welcome slip attached, and uh, you can tear that off. Uh, you can put your first and last name on there. The names of any adults that are with you will be collecting that a little bit later towards the end of the service. If you're a first or second time guest with us at Springbrook, um, we want to extend a special welcome to you. We're glad you're here with us. You can bring that by guest services. We have a gift uh, for you for being with us um, today. If you have any questions about baptism as well, you can make a note on the back. Um, but we are continuing our series um, through Ezekiel today, and so you can follow along. We've got our notes uh, as well as the passages. Uh, you can get to those uh, using our app if you haven't downloaded our Springbrook app yet, or you can use version, uh, search Springbrook Church. Uh, but you can follow along with us as we move through Ezekiel chapter 15 um, today. Today we're going to be looking at grapes and being a part of the vine and the vineyards. And so we're going to have some fun with grapes. In fact, my grapes got on the floor during the first service, so I have to be careful I don't slip because uh, we're going to have some fun as we work through this uh, passage today. I was making some chicken salad uh, a couple of weeks ago, and my wife likes chicken salad with nothing in it but chicken and mayonnaise, you know, just plain chicken salad. Me? I like putting stuff in it. And so I like some olives and some nuts, salt and pepper, some celery, and grapes. Grapes are great in chicken salad. And so I went into the refrigerator, and I got my grapes out. And uh, some of them were kind of shrivelly. I don't know how long they've been in there. I really wanted some grapes. And so I'm standing at the kitchen counter and I'm picking off the bad ones. Some of them are pretty gnarly. And so I get to the top, about the middle, I find some good ones. And so I was standing there at the sink and I was putting the good ones over here and I was throwing the bad ones into the garbage disposal. And it just clicked. It's like, wow, that's kind of what being fruit of the vine is. You know, Jesus says if we bear fruit, you know, he, he trims the grapes to keep the grapes good. The bad ones are going to destroy in this whole image came through of John 15, you know, being, being fruit of the vine and being grapes. And so it was such an image of what it's like when we're connected to Christ and we're connected to the vine, we're good grapes. And when we're bad, we get pulled off and, and chunked into the garbage disposal or burned. And so as we go through this series today, as we look at Ezekiel 15, I just want to encourage you, we want to be good grapes. That's the spoiler alert. We want to be good grapes, not sour grapes, because sour grapes end up in the fire in the garbage disposal. And so we're going to look at fruit we're going to look at grapes from Ezekiel chapter 15. I had a grapevine in the back of my yard when we had a house in California, and it looks something like this. You know, it's got a vine. It's got some grapes attached to it. It's got some leaves. And uh, I had fun with it for a little while, and then it just got to be too much work keeping it up. They really are messy. I don't know. Bees get around there. And so it's a lot of work being a vineyard keeper. Uh, but this is, you know, what a vine looks like. It, you know, it's got some grapes hanging off the end of it. And uh, you know what's interesting? In the Old Testament, the Israelites thought of themselves as grapes and a grapevine and vineyards. And so this is an image of how the Old Testament Jews, how the Israelites would have thought of themselves. They thought of themselves as being a part of a vineyard. They thought of themselves as being fruitful. In fact, when you read through the book of Genesis, when it starts talking about um, uh, Joseph and his descendants, it says this in Genesis chapter 49 in uh, verse 22. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. And so when you think about the lineage of the Israelites, they are routinely compared to a vine and grapes in a vineyard. 
And for Joseph, you know, as you think about his descendants and the, you know, the fruit running over, um, he's like a bough. It's the big main root. It's a big trunk for the vine tree. And it's planted by a spring so they can get lots of water. So it gets lots of water, lots of sunshine, and it's multiplying and it's spreading and, and its branches run over the wall. And so Israelites' image of itself in the Old Testament is that of a fruit and a vine. And so this is how the Israelites would have thought of themselves. And, and when you go into uh, further through the Old Testament, you'll see several references um, to the Israelites and being a vine, uh, being a vineyard. In fact, in Psalm 80, um, David uh, is writing uh, and asking God to restore Israel as the vineyard of the Lord. And he says this in Psalm 80, verse 8 and 9. You brought the vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted the vine, and you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, and it filled the land. And so the Israelites, after they got led out of captivity, uh, they got led out of captivity into, uh, uh, out of Egypt, uh, David likens their imagery or how they identify themselves to that of a, a grapevine planted and with deep roots continuing to multiply. And so as you work through the Old Testament, you see this continual motif, this idea that the Israelites think of themselves as a vine and a vineyard, uh, in this case, transplanted and grew and became uh, robust. And so Israel is seen as the vine. And so as you move through the Old Testament, there's constant references to Israel being the vine, being the fruit of the vine and multiplying and being a vineyard. And that's an important thing for us to know. It's an important concept that we know that the Israelites identified themselves as a vine. They were God's chosen people. They were to be fruitful. They were to be multiplying and they were to be uh, accomplishing and living out their lives for God's purposes as measured by this idea of being in a vineyard, being fruitful. But you know what happened as you move through the Old Testament over and over, you see the God's people uh, turn their backs and their hearts against God. They're routinely disobedient. Their hearts become hard. They become hard like a stone, and they turn their backs on God. Once God's chosen people, they turn their backs on God. Uh, God's favor leaves them, and they begin facing persecution and destruction and Jerusalem would be one of the last strongholds of the Israelites that would be the last one to fall. As we looked at in the beginning of Ezekiel, the Babylonians have come down and they've captured the majority of the people that are in Jerusalem and they've carried them off to Babylonia. And Ezekiel is in that group of captives and so he's one of the exiles. And um, he is there with them and he's writing uh, to them. And so when we get to Ezekiel chapter 15, it's important for us to know that it's Ezekiel that is writing directly to the, uh, to the uh, exiles. You know, he's writing to the exiles about the people that were left back in Jerusalem. The book of Ezekiel is a very unique book. It's the only book in the Old Testament. It's the only book in the Bible that was written entirely and consistently from a first-person perspective. You see, all of Scripture is God-breathed. Um, God gave each author the words uh, that we now have in Scripture. But when you're reading through Ezekiel, 
the important thing to know is it's about voice and direction. God is speaking directly to Ezekiel in the first person, and he is directly speaking those words to the Israelites that are in exile. And so it's a first-person dialogue throughout the entire book. It's one of the only books that does that. And so every word that God speaks, he speaks directly to Ezekiel. Ezekiel turns around and speaks it directly to the exiles. It's a first-person book. And so that's important because from an exile's perspective, they're wondering about Jerusalem. They're wondering about their place as God's chosen people. They're wondering about what God's doing to them as the vineyard. And so God is very specific in his intent with making sure that the message gets directly to them and that they understand that fact. I mean, he doesn't want them to miss this. This is about you. It's for you. It's coming to you through my prophet. And so Ezekiel gets the exact message word from word from God. He speaks it exactly as he hears them um, to the exiles. And it's a message that is for them. And so as we read through Ezekiel 15 today, there's some principles, there's some things that we can learn about this conversation that we can apply um, to our own lives today. So if you brought your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 15. We're going to read through that together, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at some of these verses uh, one by one as we talk about how to apply them and what they mean for us today. Ezekiel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, says this, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch says amongst the trees in the forest. Is the wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang a vessel on? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, it's useful for anything? No. Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall chase them down and consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord." When I set my face against them, and I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithfully, faithlessly, declares the Lord. And so as we read down through Ezekiel 15, we see that it is God that is speaking directly to him, and he is speaking directly to the exiles about those that are left in Jerusalem. And remember that the Israelites considered themselves a vineyard uh, full of uh, grapes. And, and so this is the perspective that the Israelites have about themselves. And so rather than God speaking to them about being chosen and about being connected to the vine and about fruitfulness, instead of speaking to them in a language uh, using metaphors that they would have understood, he changes it, and he doesn't talk to them about being a vine or being in the vineyard. He actually steps back, and he talks specifically about the wood. He's not talking about the fruit. He's talking about the wood from which uh, they have sprung up. And he compares it to the lumber that comes from the trees. 
And so where he's not talking about a vine any longer, he's talking about lumber that comes from the trees. And we see this in question one. The first question that he asks in uh, uh, Ezekiel 15 in verse two, he says, son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass the wood, the vine branch says among the trees of the forest. And so how does the wood that comes from this branch compare to the wood that comes from the tree? And so let me ask you, how does that compare? So if you were going to build something today, what kind of wood would you go to purchase at Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever you go to buy your wood? Would you want and say, hey, I need some wood from the vine to build a house? Would you say, I need some wood of the vine to build something for the stage? I mean, what good is this wood for compared to a good solid piece of lumber? Which one of these is more sturdy? The lumber, right? And so it's kind of a rhetorical question. How can the value of this wood surpass the value of this wood? In other words, it can't. There is no comparison. This wood is nothing in comparison to the wood of a tree. And so God starts to speak to them about not just their fruitfulness or being connected to the vine, but what kind of wood they are. And he compares it to the lumber uh, that comes from the tree versus the lumber or the wood that would come from a vine. And in essence, he says, this is worthless compared to the lumber. And it goes from bad to worse because his second question, he says this, is wood taken from it to make anything? In other words, if you think about a vine and you think about the wood that the grapes are hanging from, what can you think of that anybody would make anything out of a grapevine wood? I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing that you would make out of grapevine wood. It is useless. And he goes on to the third question. He says, it's limping useless. He said, you can't even make a peg from it. Can people take a peg from it and hang a vessel on it? You can't even make you can't even hang anything on this. It's like a toothpick. I mean, you can't even get a toothpick out of this. I mean, it is utterly useless compared to a piece of lumber. It has no value. You can't even make a peg. And so at this point, um, in case there was any doubt about the uselessness of the vine wood, God says this in the next question, in question number four. He says, behold, this wood is to be given to the fire for what? For fuel. So it's good for fuel. The wood is good for fuel. And when the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it used for anything? And so it's gone from not only being useful when it's charred, it's not even useful as firewood. It doesn't even burn all the way down. It just burns at the ends. You ever thrown a piece of, you know, a little, you know, little sprig on a fire. It doesn't even burn right. You got to pack it tight. I mean, it's not, it's not even effective as a fuel for a fire. And so God points out to them that this wood of the vine is uh, useless. It's not even, uh, it's useful just maybe for fuel. And it goes from bad to it gets even worse because he drives the point home with the fifth question. He says this, behold, when it was whole, it was used for absolutely nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it as it charred that it can ever be used for anything. It is a, absolutely of no value. Even before it was burned up, it was good for nothing. Now that it's been burned and charred, how much more is it 
even more in a worse condition and useful for nothing. God is trying to make a point with the Israelites. He's trying to make a point that you are no longer the vine. Um, You are being compared to the vine wood. And he's trying to make sure that they're not confused with these five questions about how bad the situation is that they are in. And he's speaking to the Israelites that are in exile about the people that are in Jerusalem. He's talking to them about God's chosen people. And then as you get down into verse 6, he says this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, like that wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given for fire, for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Just like that vine has become useless and good for nothing and is going to be given up for fuel, just like that, I am going to give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's going to give up Jerusalem to destruction. And so in case there was any doubt about your family, friends, or those that were left behind, wondering if they were going to get out, or maybe thinking that, hey, God's forgiven us in the past. He'll forgive us again. At some point, we're just going to get to go home because that's been their cycle so far. They've sinned. They've messed up. They turned their back on God. They got punished, and then they went back. It just kind of, it's just kind of the rut that they've fallen into. You know, I was growing up as a kid. I used to go to church. I'd go to confession, and I'd say, I'm sorry, and then I'd go back. And the next day, I was doing the same thing. Well, I guess I have to go back to confession again. It wasn't a repentant heart that the Israelites had. It was a routine that they had fallen into, a consistent pattern of behavior that God says, this is the end. You're not going to get to go back. Those people are not going to get to come out. You know, I'm sure that they're wondering, well, I'm sure that that's their hope. Well, I want to go back to my homeland. They've been displaced. I'm sure they want to go back home. And I'm sure that they want their friends and family to get out of there. But unfortunately for them, God has destroyed the possibility of any escape or them returning to Israel or to Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. I'm going to give them up and they're going to be destroyed. And then he'd go on to say in verse 7 and 8, he says this, and I'm going to set my face against them. Though they will escape for the fire, the fire shall chase them down. They are going to be consumed. And you will know that I am the Lord. And when I set my face against them, I'm going to make the land desolate. In other words, there's not going to be anything for you to go back to. Jerusalem is going to be utterly and completely destroyed. So not only is not anybody going to escape, there's going to be nothing for you to go back to. This is the end of Jerusalem. And this suffering and this judgment have come, and God's going to make the land detestable and desolate and uninhabitable. The result of that is because of their own behavior. This action is going to result in their final destruction as the charred vines are consumed by the fire. And all of this is happening because of what we find at the end of verse 8. It says this, I'm going to do these things because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord. They have continued over and over and over to act faithfully. It is the end. And so that is the word of the Lord that God has for Ezekiel, that he turns around 
and delivers immediately to the exiles. You see, Ezekiel's task was to deliver a message to the exiles that based on God's judgment, Jerusalem's time was over. It has come to an end. And from God's point of view, the city of Jerusalem is history. It's done. It's over. There is no going back. There is no rebuilding. There was then, just as it continues today, the strong Jewish nationalistic pride, though, that says, well, God will forgive us again. We still want to be the vine. We want to go back. Well, guess what? Those days are over. They're gone. Jerusalem has been destroyed. There's nothing to go back to, and nobody is going to survive this. Despite the physical separation from their homeland, despite the separation from their Daviatic king, despite their separation from Jerusalem and their temple that would at some point soon be completely destroyed, there's an idea that we're going to get to go back, that somehow we're going to get to rebuild this and that we're going to be God's chosen people again. But God's message to them is, you are no longer the fruit of the vine. You're not it. You're, you're like the wood. It is over. And God implements and institutes a new plan through the exiles. You know, God has then, and he has to this day, a new plan for the Israelites. A new plan that he is going to work through the exiles that have been taken out of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem's gone, the people are gone, uh, that has all fallen away, and God has a new plan that he wants to do through the exiles as he works out and continues to work out his plan for his people. Now, 150 years earlier, um, the prophet Isaiah tells the same story about the fall and the destruction of the Israelites, the Jewish people in, in Jerusalem. Isaiah would write 150 years earlier in chapter 5, and I'm not going to put the whole verse up there. We'll come back and look at one of them. But I want to read for, uh, for you what Isaiah writes in chapter 5 about this vineyard being destroyed. Um, it says this, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Let me sing for my beloved, for my song considering his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard. It was on a very fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones and he planted it by streams of water. It's the Psalm 90 passage. It's the same passage that Ezekiel's making reference to when he talks to them about being a vineyard. He had this great vineyard. And then it says in verse 2, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it didn't yield any grapes. It, yield, it yielded sour, wild, nasty, no good grapes. I, yield for, I looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was, was there for me to do with this vineyard that I have not already done to it? I've already given them everything they needed to be fruitful. I've I continued to work with them. They continue to be disobedient. What else can I do? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? In verse 8, he says, and now I'm going to tell you what I'll do with my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down and I will make it waste. That's what it says in Isaiah 5, verses 5 and 6. I tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge of protection. 
my hand of blessing is no longer going to be on it. It is going to be devoured. I'm going to break down its wall. My face will be against it, and it shall be trampled down, and I will lay it to waste. It's over. It's done. There's no coming back from it. And so Isaiah would tell this uh, to the people 150 years earlier. It's coming to pass as we move through Ezekiel, specifically in chapter 15. This is where uh, Ezekiel is pointing them to. Your time is done. It's over. Jerusalem is going to be laid to waste. You're not going to be able to go back to it. You're not going to be able to rebuild it. I have a new plan that I want to do in and through you, and I'm going to do it starting with those that are in exile. And in Isaiah, in chapter 5, we see with clarity what that new plan is. As you read through Isaiah, uh, it continues to talk about God's unfolding plan. Uh, as you get to chapter uh, 9, I'll read a couple passages for you out, uh, in chapter 9, and we're going to come back and we're going to look at one of these verses specifically. But in chapter 9, it says this, beginning in verse 1, in spite of how bad this situation is, there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. As bad as this situation is, you do not have to be gloomy. There is hope. I'm going to do something new. In a former time, he brought the contempt, he brought the contempt, the land of the uh, Zebulun, and then the land of Nephtali, he brought them there. But in the latter time, he's going to make a glorious way a way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. In other words, he says, I was fulfilling my plan out through the Israelites um, as the vine, but now that's going to be destroyed. And now I'm going to do something new in a new land that's going to be glorious beyond the sea, a land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the deep darkness on them, his light will shine Verse 3, it says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of this new plan, the yoke of this burden and the staff of his shoulder uh, is going to be light. The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on one day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and the battle tumult and every garment's going to be rolled in blood. They're going to be burned as fuel for the fire. And then he says this in verse 6. So part of this new plan. But for unto us, a child will be born. Unto us, a son will be given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forward to forevermore will the Lord do this. Does that sound familiar? I mean, in verse 9, look what it says in verse 6. For unto us, this is the new plan, by the way. You're no longer the vine. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The land's going to be laid to waste. I'm going to do a new work through the exiles. This new plan's going to pick up with, for unto us a child will be born, a son will be given. Who is he talking about? Every Christmas, who is that? Somebody say it. Jesus. <laughs> That's the new plan. You know, you were God's chosen people. You were the vine. You were the branches. You were all the fruit. God's plan was rooted in 
the Israelites as the vine in the Old Testament. And now we have a New Testament, a new, co- a new covenant, where we are now rooted in Christ. You see, Jesus is now the new vine. It's no longer Jerusalem and the temple and the Israelite people. Jesus is now the true vine. In John 15, that's exactly what he says about him. In verse 1, it says this, I am what? I am the true vine. And so this is what it means to be connected now. So what was in the Old Testament, something that was reserved for those that were God's chosen people, they were the They were the vine and the branches in the vineyard. Because of their disobedience, they were compared to wood. They've been told they were going to be useless. They're going to be burned. It's been destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. I don't know if that's news. The temple's gone. You know, there's there's nothing there. You know, God has a new plan now. And it's for us that are in Christ. Jesus is now saying that he is the vine and we are the branches. This is God's new plan for us through Christ. And so as we think about what it means to live out our faith today, we want to be connected to the true vine. And so we now have an opportunity, praise be to God, that we have been grafted in, we've been adopted. I am a child of God now, not because of my Jewish heritage or because of my faithfulness as God's chosen people or keeping the Old Testament law. I am now a child of God because of who I am in Christ. You see, he is the true vine that we all need to be connected to. Ezekiel's task was to deliver a message to the exiles that based on God's judgment, your time was over and there's a new plan that God's working out for us now in Christ. From God's point of view, the city of Jerusalem's history, it's gone, it's over, there's no rebuilding and there's a new plan that we now find as a result of who we are in Christ. And it's Jesus as the new true vine. And so that's where we find our identity today. Our identity today is not tied to Jerusalem. It's not tied to the temple. It's not tied to the Israelites. Our identity in God and our relationship with God is not based on those things, but our identity now is who we are in Christ. Jesus did not come to replace the law. He came to fulfill it. And so he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Everything that we need to know, we find in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is now the vine. And guess what? We are the branches. In John 15, verse 2, it says this, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. You know, I'm looking for some good fruit. If it's not bearing fruit, it's gone. He takes it away. But every, every, every branch that does bear fruit, he's going to prune, he's going to trim it so that it can bear more fruit. And so this is us now. And so Jesus is the new vine and we are the fruit. Guess what, guys? You guys are all grapes. You're, you're connected to the vine because of who we are in Christ now. This is us. We've left the analogy. We're no longer the wood. We are now back to the original analogy that God was using reserved for the Old Testament and the New Testament today for us. We are now the vine and we are the branches. This body of Christ is a bunch of grape clusters gathered together, connected because of who we are in Christ. And so you're grapes. And so the real question is, is what kind of a grape are you? Are you a good grape or are you a sour grape? See, we still are known by our fruit. You know, we have the opportunity now because of God's grace, because of our sanctification through the work of his Holy Spirit, we can continually experience new life. God is continuing to do a work in us. 
And so we make a faith commitment. We're justified before God. We, can, we know where we're going. We're going to heaven. But the Spirit of God works in us. He sanctifies us and he helps us not to be like the Israelites, not to just confess our sin and go back to doing what we were doing before, but changes us. We are new in Christ. We are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is coming. So our Christian walk, there should be something different about us as we live out our faith. We are secure now because of who we are in Christ connected to this vein, but we need to make sure that we're pruning those areas of our life that need to be pruned so that we can in turn bear more fruit. So we're connected to the vine. Jesus says this in verse four. He says that we're to abide in him. Abide in me and I will be in you. You know, the spirit of God is in you. If you are a Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Before you have a relationship with Christ, he's external. You ask Christ to come into your life, he comes in. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There's nothing that you can do in your own strength. We need the spirit of God to work in and through us if we're going to accomplish what God has for us individually and collectively as the body of Christ. And so it's not as if, hey, I make a faith commitment, I became a Christ follower today, and then tomorrow all my hurts, habits, and hangups are gone. You know, we are working out our faith. God is continually changing us and transforming us as we seek to be like the one that we've been called to be towards Jesus. We're all working towards Christ's likeness. You know, the Spirit of God works into us. He changes us. He conforms us to His image. And there's something different about our life as we work our faith out. There should be something different about us. That's where the fruit comes from. And you know what? You can't do it on your own strength. You know, I, I had uh, at one point before Christ, um, I had, uh, I, I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. I hate to tell people that. My lungs have repaired themselves. It's 22 years ago. I tried to quit smoking. I can't tell you how many times I tried to drink smoking. I tried to quit. I had a couple of vices. We're not going to go on to all those. I tried to change those things on my own. Oh, I'm going to quit. Oh, I'm going to stop doing this. You know, it works for about a week. But you know what? Until I gave my life to Christ, um, I have to say every attempt that I did on my own failed. It wasn't until Christ came into my life that I was able to experience life change. God took things away from me. There's things that I was doing that I no longer do. Praise God for that, right? I mean, it'd be terrible to have a pastor that was, you know, out there doing things he wasn't supposed to be doing, wasn't it? So, but you know what? As we abide in him, he changes us. He makes us new. And we can't do it in our own strength. We need him to accomplish it. And as you move through John 15, that's exactly what he says in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he's going to bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do this in your own strength. You need me to live out the life that God has called you to live out. And so we ask Christ to come into our life. We get grafted in. We are now his chosen people. Thank God that I am one of God's chosen people. I'm a child of God. Not because of my identity as a Jew or as an Israelite, but because of my identity and who I am in Christ. And that's my prayer for each one of us, that we would all be able to find our identity in him, that we'd be able to trust him with our life in spite of our anxieties, in spite of our hurts. You know, God has a plan for us and we can't accomplish anything apart from him. 
You know, if God feels distant from you, it's not him that moves. To abide, to abide in God's word means that we're going we're gonna to read his word. You know, we talk to God through prayer. We do a lot of talking, but we don't do a lot of listening. We listen to God as we read his word, as we reflect on it, and we apply it to our lives. A relationship with God is based on talking and listening to God. And so we talk to him through prayer. We abide, we hear from him as we abide in his word, as we study it, as we apply it to our lives. And this is why having a relationship with Christ is so important. We want people to, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, we, we want you to have one because that's where the fullness of life comes from. It gives you the assurance, not only of heaven, but the fullness of life that is yours today in Christ. Plus where you're gonna spend eternity is pretty important as well. But you don't have to wait until eternity to experience the fullness of life in Christ. You can experience it right now if you abide in his word. That's why small groups are so important. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles at the ministry center counter. You can pick one up. It's important that you be in God's word. That's what it means to abide and to make him Lord. You know, we make a faith commitment. We get baptized. We're all looking forward to going to heaven. I know Jesus Christ as my savior and my Lord. Savior is knowing where I'm going Lordship is abiding. And so that means I'm going to submit myself to his word. It means I'm going to read it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to apply it to my life. And I'm going to live that out. That's what it means to have a Lord. And why small groups are so important. We get to encourage one another in our faith journey. We get to study God's word together. And we get to live it out together. That's why being connected to a ministry is so important. You know, there are no such things as a, as a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't survive on your own. You know what happens to this grape if I pull it off? Same thing that happened to all these on the floor that I've been stepping on. <laughs> You're not going to make it. Put that in the water. You can't make it on your own. You need to be connected to something, which is why being connected to the body of Christ is so important. We have to abide in God's word. We need a relationship with Christ. We need to ask him in. We need to make him our Lord, and we need to abide in him. In verse 6, it says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away just like a branch and he withers and the branches are all gathered and they're going to be thrown into the fire and burned. My heart breaks for people that don't have a relationship with Christ. You know why? I don't want them to experience that. I don't want them to experience the desolation and the brokenness and the punishment and the judgment of God like Jerusalem had to face. I want people to be assured that they're going to spend eternity in heaven. I want them to have that assurance and I want them to be able to experience the fullness of life that they can have in Christ today. This is real. You know, as you look through the New Testament, as you look through who we are in Christ, everything is about now us being connected to the vine. And so this morning, I want to ask you, are you connected? Do you have a relationship with Christ? If you do not have a relationship with Christ, today is the day for you to get connected. Understand you have a sin problem. None of us is perfect. We're all separated from God. We need Jesus in our life. You know, we need a relationship with Christ. And if you don't have one and you're not sure, if you're not sure you have one, I want to encourage you today to, to make that your next step. You need to have a relationship with Christ if you're going to experience the fullness of life that is promised to us. And so if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can circle the number one uh, on your welcome slip. I'd love the opportunity to talk with you. If you'll come see me after the service, I'd love the opportunity to pray with you. We can talk about that this morning as well, but don't leave today without reconciling that in your mind first. That's why this church exists, to reach this community for Christ. We want to help people that don't have a relationship with Jesus to have one. 
And the other thing that we want to, we exist is we want to help people to grow in their faith. And so if you uh, have made a faith commitment and you're stuck and you're not quite sure what's next, maybe baptism is your next step. That's the, that's the first step of obedience. Jesus says, go make disciples. And if they feel like it, baptize them. Go make disciples, baptize them. It's a command. My wife and I entered into a covenant relationship with one another before God and witnesses. And he said, after we entered and we made this promise, do you have a ring? Yes, this ring is a symbol of my covenant relationship with my wife, just like baptism is a symbol for us today of our covenant relationship with God. It's replaced circumcision from the Old Testament. We have a new covenant. We have a new form of circumcision. It's called baptism. It's the first step of obedience. If you've never been baptized and you, want to, and you have a relationship with Christ, even if you don't have a relationship with Christ, we want to do that first. Get baptized. It's great. Dean's back there. He's got a gray beard. He's got his shirt on. He's waving his arms. You want to get baptized, we'll cut this short. Right now, you go back and talk to Dean. I'll give you my shorts. We'll baptize you today. You don't want to do it today? We'll do it next week. But don't wait. Because every day that you wait, your heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Baptism is a step of obedience. Getting involved in a small group is a step of obedience. You're showing up this morning, by the way, was a step of obedience. Praise God that you guys showed up today. It's daylight savings time. There's a lot of places that you could have been today. It's a step of obedience to say, hey, look, I'm going to come worship God. I want to hear his word proclaimed. I want to study it. I want to apply it to my life today. This is a step of obedience. And so we want to continue to help people grow in their faith, learn their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. That's our discipleship pathway. It begins by understanding how to have a relationship with Christ. And then we want to build passionate followers of Jesus as they grow in their faith. And so if we can help you find a place to serve and get connected, we'd love to help you to be able to do that um, as well. We have a starting point workshop next Sunday during the, this service. And so you can come to the first service if you'd like and come join me for starting points, a two-week workshop. If you've got a packed schedule and you can't make both, then I want to encourage you next Sunday, you can listen to the message online. Don't tell anybody else I said that. But I want you to come to starting point with me. It's a two-week class. You'll get to hear about our vision, our mission, our values, how to have a relationship with Christ and what we're all about. I guarantee you'll love the workshop. It's a great opportunity for us to help you uh, identify your next step. But you can take one of these next steps um, today. But I want to encourage you that as you think about um, working out your faith, that you understand that you now have the opportunity to be connected to this that you are a child of God because of who you are in Christ, and we want to help people to grow and flourish and be fruitful. That's why our ministry exists, and I hope that that's what you take away uh, from our time together this morning, that God has a plan for you. It's rooted in who you are in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this uh, day you've given us today. I thank you for this new life that is ours in Christ. God, I thank you that... Uh, that you have seen fit to call us into a relationship with yourself. I thank you for the work that you're doing in and through this ministry. I pray that you continue to strengthen us. Uh, God, we look forward to all that you have for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.